you understand that's God's plan for your life. And He is single-minded. You may give up on yourself over and over again, or you may think you've arrived. In either case, you're wrong. But God is at work in you, the Bible says, both to will and to do His good pleasure. And His good pleasure is to conform you to the image of His Son. Why? Because when you came to Christ, you became His child. And just as a good parent does with their children, they want to see them grow and mature and develop into the fullness of all, that God, all the plan that God has for you. And last year we talked for a while on the blueprint, the plan that God has for you. We have three sons. Two of our sons have been home visiting us from, from, uh, from Nashville where they live. And even as a father enjoying being with them. I'm listening for things, making little comments here. You know, you're checking where your kids are because you want to see the very best for them. You want to see them grow and mature, and you never stop being a parent, even when they're 40 years old and older than that. And you, you look at them as a parent. Well, we're no different. We're no better than he is, are we? In fact, he's the definition of what it means to be a parent. The Bible says we learn fatherhood and, and parenthood is defined by who he is. We don't look at how, what a good father I am and say, Father, God's like me. No, it's the other way around. He is the essence of fatherhood. He is the essence of what it is to be a parent. And therefore, we learn what that's like to be from him. But one of the things of a parent is they don't leave you where you are. They, they're after you to grow and mature. And so God's will for your life is to grow and mature. And the blueprint he has is literally the fullness of the image of Christ. And so we're looking at who Christ is. So open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. And we've been focusing on a particular question that we may focus on for some time. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Because I believe with all my heart that it will change who you are as you begin to get a revelation of the, of the answer to this question. It's interesting how many times I pick up some little book or some article or listen to some tape or CD and I'm finding out that that preacher, that teacher is coming back to this issue. And I really believe it is what the Spirit of God is at least saying to Faith Christian Center for now. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And we'll talk about Son of Man later on. So they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah, or some say you're one of the prophets. He said to them, and this is the question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then this was strange. He commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. We'll talk about that later on. What we're focused on right now is this question where he says, who do men say that I am? We've talked about that before, that in his day, everybody had some kind of opinion on who he was, and it was the question that was on the lips of everybody. Who is this man? Even his own disciples would marvel at times and say, what manner of man is this? Because even the winds obey him and the storms obey him. So even his own disciples didn't yet have that full revelation of who he is. 
And so Jesus at this point says, well, what, who do people think that I am? And so they express the opinions of people. And then he asks the question, yeah, but who do you say that I am? It's interesting. You'll talk to people, especially if you may be witnessing to them, and I don't know, I haven't run across this lately, but I, I, I have many times before. As you start talking about Jesus and you talk about God and they say, yeah, but what about all this star? If I, if, if, Jesus, if I have to believe in Jesus to be saved, what about all the starving people in China that don't ever hear about him? And, of course, that's a way of deflecting attention from them. Because my answer is, but you have heard. You just heard now. What are you going to do? Every one of us has to answer this question. It is the question for the ages. And it's not just a matter like in school of making sure I get the right answer so I pass. The answer to this question changes you. And, and, and although, as I've mentioned a number of times before, if we passed out a slip of paper right now and I said, now, I want you to answer this question, who, who is Jesus? You'd get, you'd, you'd, 99% of you get the right answer. And the 1% is the one that's sleeping. <laughs> I mean, this is not rocket science. You know, we, we know theologically who he is. So that's not what he's getting at. That's not what God's getting at. Do you know who, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. I know that. I know he's the Christ. I know that. Yeah, but do we? It's the revelation of that that will change us. Because Jesus' answer to Peter when he gives the answers, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And then he goes on and says, and you're Peter. I'll change your name to Peter, which is the Greek word for little stone. And upon this rock, which is a word for large rock, which is a foundation, I will build my church. In other words, on the revelation of who I am, I will build my church. He goes on to say, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then he says, so hell cannot stop the church that's based on the revelation of who he is. Hell cannot stop a person that has a revelation of who he is. Because when you have a revelation of who he is, nothing can stop you. And then he said, to you I give the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Literally it says, whatever you bind on earth will be as if it's already been bound in heaven. In other words, the authority that who of who I am in heaven, I've given to the church here on earth to carry out my will and my purposes. We talked about that before, how, how the church is not walking in that authority and not walking in that dominion and not walking in that victory, either because they don't understand they have the authority or they've not yet learned how to properly exercise it. Because God will only honor that authority when it's exercised according to the purpose for which it was given. And we've talked about that before. We're not going to go back over that. And then last time we focused in on one particular aspect of this answer, because there's really two things he says here. He says, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. We talked last time about what it means to be the Christ. The word means an anointed one. And anointing simply means <clears throat> that you've been chosen for a purpose and given the ability of the person that chose you to carry out that purpose. We went through and saw a number of people in the Bible that God anointed to do something. We looked at the, when God called them and gave them that assignment. We looked at the purpose that was given and we saw how God gave them his ability because in most cases they tried to carry that purpose out in their own ability and failed. And then we ended last time by looking at bringing it over to Jesus and seeing how he was called by God. Seeing that his purpose was to destroy the works of the enemy. To restore all that was accomplished 
when Adam sinned and disobeyed God, to restore all of God's original blessing and plan, relationship and everything that was God's plan in that garden. Jesus came, that was his purpose, was to win that back and defeat the enemy that had stolen that. We didn't go on, we made reference to it, but, but then God gave him his ability. <clears throat> it talks about in, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about the anointing of the Spirit, the Spirit that was upon him, a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of might and a spirit of counsel and a spirit of government. And we're not going to take the time to go look at that this morning. And then we in Isaiah 61, it says, For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me. So God gave Jesus his own ability to carry out his purpose. This morning we're going to begin to look at the other aspect of this, and that is what it means that he is the Son of God. So let's go look at this verse again and read this verse. This is the answer in verse 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We're going to talk this morning, or begin to talk this morning, about what it means that Jesus, that God sent to this earth, is the Son of the living God. What does it mean that God sent to carry out this mission His own Son? What does that mean to us? And we're searching for a greater revelation of, of the fact that God gave His Son to the world, to you and me. So turn with me to John chapter 3. And we're going to look at a number of scriptures this morning. While you're turning there, I want to mention something to you about this issue. Who, as, I, as, the, as the Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? What defines the difference in religions today and really has since Jesus' day? What defines the difference in religions in many cases is who they say Jesus is. Almost every religion has a view of him. There are a few that I found that didn't, but most of them do. So the, so the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, that he, is, he is a God, but he's somehow lower than God. He's not equal with God. So he's in God's class, but he's not, he's not quite equal with God, so he couldn't be his son. And he was created by God. The... the uh, uh, the Unification Church of Reverend Sung Young Moon and many of the others believe that Jesus was a good man. Uh, the Muslims believe that he's a prophet, one of the prophets, and really a great prophet. You know, it's kind of a way of paying lip service to God. Yeah, we realize he's important, but he's not who you say he is. So they say he's a great prophet, one of the best prophets, but he's a prophet. Christian science say he's a man who demonstrated the divine ideal. And there are many others we could go and look at. The problem is, with all of this, is Jesus doesn't give you that option. Jesus doesn't give you the option of saying he was a good man. I mean, he was a good man of saying that's all he was. Jesus doesn't give you the option of saying, well, he was a great prophet. And, and, and he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was the son of God who also operated as a prophet. But to say he was anything short of the son of God, 
He doesn't, and, and he was a good person, doesn't give you, he doesn't give you that option because Jesus says about himself that he's the son of God. And we're going to see that this morning. Now think about this. If, if he says he's the son of God and he's not, he's either a liar or a fool. If he's a liar, he can't still be a great prophet. He can't be a man of great dignity and great example for us if he's a liar. All right, the other possibility is he's a fool. If he's a fool, he can't be a great prophet and he can't be a great example to follow. So he takes those two options away from us so the only option is he's a liar or a fool or he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, that now confronts us with what are we going to do with the fact that God gave his son to us. And see, what so many people want to do is they, want, they, want to, they, they don't want to deny he's the son, but they don't want to have to deal with the fact that what that means to us. So they water down who he is. He's a great man that lived. He doesn't give you that option. See, that's what God's like that. He doesn't give you multiple choices. I liked, in school, I liked multiple choices because if you didn't know the answer, you could guess. I mean, at least they give you some options to guess. But I did not like essay questions because you can't guess. It becomes apparent early on whether you know what you're talking about or not. God doesn't give you multiple choices. His choices are simple. The same one they were in the garden. Obey or disobey. That's it. It's simple. And by the way, we need to do that with our kids. When you complicate it for them, you, you confuse them as to what you're expecting. And you're, doing, you're not doing a good job of representing God before them because God doesn't give us multiple choices. We've talked about it before. They're not called the ten suggestions. They're not called the ten principles by which you can be blessed if you follow them. They're ten commandments. When you hear the word commandment, that tells you immediately you have two choices. Obey or disobey. That's it. And so, others want to deal with him and answer this question on their own terms. But God doesn't give us that option. So the question for us today is, what does it mean to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, go with me now to, to John chapter 3. That's where I told you to turn, wasn't it? I mean, one of the, probably the most famous scripture in the Bible. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the, the world through him might be saved. 
Now, this is in red letters in my Bible, so that proves Jesus said it. So Jesus is saying about himself that God sent his own son to the world so that the world through his son might be saved. Now, what I'm going to begin teach you today, the only thing goal for today is to establish that Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem. So turn with him, and many of you know that, but we're going to review that, and I trust the Spirit of God is going to bring something, a revelation out of that into us so that it has a depth to us that it may not have had before. So turn with me to John chapter 1. The other Gospels start the story of the Gospels with the preparation for or the birth of Jesus. They're called the synoptic Gospels. They basically tell the same story. What's so wonderful about the, one of the things wonderful about the Gospel of John is it tells the story from a different perspective. John doesn't begin the story in Nazareth or in Palestine at that time. John begins at the very beginning, and that's how he opens. In the beginning. Now, let's stop there. The beginning of what? You need to learn to ask questions when you read your Bible, because remember the author lives inside of you? You ask him, he'll answer you. In the beginning of what? Well, not in the beginning of God, because God's always existed. He's talking about in the beginning of the creation of this world. And by world, it doesn't necessarily mean the planet Earth. It's this entire realm of existence that's the natural realm. In the beginning, when this was created, was the Word. I want to talk about this word I'll be careful here, it's a tongue twister. The word, word. It is the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S. There's two basic Greek words that are translated in the New Testament as word. The other word is rhema, which means essentially a word spoken to somebody personally, made quick to them. But this word is logos, L-O-G-O-S, and I don't want to bore you with a study on the word logos, but some understanding of it will, will be helpful to us. The word means, if it's talking about an idea or a thing, it means the entire concept of something, the entire study of it. So if you were interested in American history and you were able to take all the courses that Rhode Island College or URI or one of the big, Brown gave, you would have a bigger idea of the logos of, of American history. Or even if we just focused on the revolution. You'd know who was in it, what was it about, what the different campaigns were, the political background, the goals, and all that. All of that would constitute an understanding of the concept of the American Revolution. But if you bring that over, that word over, and you talk about a person, it refers to their entire personality, it refers to their will, it refers to their character, it refers to their makeup. In other words, all that makes up John is the logos of John. And so what this is saying is, in the beginning was the word. Now, it means the expression of something. So what this is saying is, in the beginning was the word. It is, means the full expression of God. Now, that's not so strange, because we have four children, three of whom are sons, and two of them have been staying with us the last ten days. It's not so shocking to begin to see traits in them, 
that I see in me. And as I fought back upon my father, I find as I've gotten older traits and ways of thinking and speaking in me that I saw in him. And the ones that really gall me are the ones that I swore I'd never say or think or do. I remember growing up saying, my, I'll never be like my mother. And then you turn around one day, I'm like, oh my goodness. Well, we may not like it, but it's not shocking, is it? It's like, how could that happen? Well, I don't like it, but it's not shocking that it happened. In fact, it might be shocking if my parents with blonde hair and blue eyes, and I turned out, you know, looking very differently. So my point is this. It's not shocking that a child should grow up to resemble their parent, is it? That's not shocking, is it? In fact, they are an expression of us. That's why we get so uptight about what they do. <laughs> now, be, be, be good, Johnny. You know, it's not just what they think of Johnny you're concerned with. It's what they're going to think of you. Why? Because that child is an expression of not only your genetic structure of what it's like to live in your household. So that's not shocking that a child should be an expression of their parents. And that's really what this word means. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He, oh, now we know it's a person, was with God. Now go look at verse 14. And the Word, when we're just talking about, became flesh and dwelt among us. So before all of this was created, you had God, the Father, the Source, and you had God, the Son, who somehow came out of him. I don't understand it or can't begin to understand it, at least in this world while I'm here, but I don't have to understand it to believe it. It says so. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. In other words, God spoke to the, the Jewish fathers by prophets, men that God anointed to speak a message. So he's talking about here about God communicating to his people. Verse 2, and he has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Verse 3. Who being the brightness, as the New King James says, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So it's talking about the Son being the brightness of his glory. Some translations say the, the outshining. The word, the, the, the word literally means in Greek an outshining. 
We'll talk about what that means for a moment because it's an important word to understand. You've all seen the moon? That's not a trick question. You've all seen that big white, yellow thing up in the sky that moves and comes up sometimes and doesn't come up sometimes. Sometimes it's full, sometimes it's small. So we're all talking about the same thing? Okay. The reason the moon doesn't seem to come up sometimes is because there's times when the earth is between it and the sun. In fact, if it's fully between it, it forms what's called a lunar or moon eclipse. And what happens is the sun, the moon, the earth, blocks the light of the sun from striking the moon. So I already know this stuff, Pastor. Well, here's my point. The moon has no source of light itself. It doesn't absorb the sun's light. So at any time when something comes between the source of that light and the moon, you can't see the moon even though it's there. And for us, it's the earth. As either the moon rotates around us or we move around the sun, we get in the way of the light hitting the moon. When it doesn't hit the moon, the moon's there, but we can't see it. That's not what this word means. That's reflected light. Reflected light comes from the source, bounces off the object into your eyes. This word means a being that absorbs the light and then gives it back out again. Now, I, I used to have a watch that had what they called fluorescent dial on it so you could read the numbers in the, daytime, in the nighttime. And what would happen is the paint that they used on those numbers would absorb light and then give it back out again when you got out, away from the source of the light. I've now got a watch that's much fancier than that. It has a little battery in there so that it absorbs whatever light's in the room and you can literally keep it in a drawer for six months and bring it out and it will still run and there will still be light. In fact, I've noticed at night it, the light, the numbers shine. That's a light that's been... It's not the source of the energy, but it's absorbed the energy and gives it back out again. Now, we went through that little exercise to help us understand what this word means. It means to absorb. So what the glory that's coming out of the sun didn't originate with him, but it's become part of who he is. So that when that light and that life and that glory comes from him, it's not bouncing off of him, but it's been absorbed by him and it's coming out of him, but the original source of it was from the Father. You all with me so far? Yes. Okay, that's what this word means. So go back and read it again. Who being the brightness or the outshining of his glory, the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, which he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now, we're, we're, we'll go, later on, we may go look at the rest of this chapter. Go with me to 1 John chapter 1. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now let me explain to you one of the reasons why the Apostle John is focused on this issue. 
Because one of the things that developed very early on after the church was born was immediate, well, not immediately, but within, within 10, 20 years, people began to develop other ideas of what the gospel was and of who Jesus is. Because it all revolves around who Jesus is. It all revolves around who he is. Who do you say that I am? What began to develop were some really heresies. And, and almost all heresies or errors somehow are centered around a misunderstanding of Jesus. The gospel tells us that God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. The inconceivable that God would become one of us and yet still be God. So heresies try to push that off to one of those to one degree or another. So there was, a, there was a philosophy in the early history of the church, which is still out there today under different names, which is that basically God couldn't take on flesh because flesh is dirty. It's, uh, it's, and I'm not talking about, you know, stuff you get playing in the dirt. I mean, it's, it gets sinful nature. You ever notice it has desires and tendencies that aren't good? Uh, have you ever noticed that? Only 14 of you have. I'm a little concerned about that. I need to change the message. All right? And so what they're saying is, well, wait a minute. God, who is holy and perfect, can't possibly have taken on... And, and, and this earth is cursed. It is, it's, it's, not, it's not holy. It's not righteous. So how could a holy God actually make contact with an unholy place? So they literally came up with this thought that it really was an illusion of flesh that he wore. And they would take scriptures like in Romans 8 where it says, He came in the likeness of flesh. You say, well, see, it wasn't really flesh. And there are teachings out there today that say that. It was, it was the likeness of flesh. Well, likeness there doesn't refer to the fact it wasn't real flesh. Likeness refers to the fact that his flesh didn't have the tendency to sin that yours and mine did. Or does. So, so what they said was, well, wait a minute, he, he didn't, didn't really wear, and he didn't exactly touch. So literally they said this. You really have to start stretching things when you start getting away from what the gospel says. So they would say, he didn't actually touch the earth. And he didn't actually touch people. He, he, he walked, he, because he's God, he could do this. He walked so close to the earth that it looked as if he was touching it, but he really wasn't. And he didn't actually touch people because they're not clean. He, 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 but it looked as if he did. So they're taking their point of view and having to force the logical conclusions to something that's absurd because they just don't accept what the gospel says. So they said, well, he was all God, but he couldn't possibly have been man. On the other hand, you have people who think, well, he wasn't really God, he was just a good man. But the gospel teaches, the Bible teaches us, he was all God and all man. And so John is writing that, because that's why he says, the, the word, look what he says here. The word which was from the beginning, that's the expression of God. That was from the beginning, which we have heard with our ears, and we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked upon, and our hands have hand. In other words, we've touched the Son of God. We've touched Him. So we know He came in the flesh. I saw Him. I heard Him with my ears, and I touched Him. 
And then he goes on to say who this one is that he saw and he heard and he touched. And the life was manifested. And we've seen him bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested or made known to us. And that which we've heard and seen, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind or attitude be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, the anointed Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, or some translation says to be, he didn't consider it robbery to hold on to God. In other words, what this is saying is, he was God, but he, it was not... See, if you and I went up there and said, well, I'm going to be God, that's trying to take somebody else's position. That's what Lucifer did, or tried to do. But what he's saying is, it wasn't robbery for him to say he was like God, because he was God. You, you following me? And he, this is before he came here. So watch this, what happens. who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, with God but made himself of no reputation. The, the, literally, the Greek word is kenosis, which means he emptied himself of his reputation. He took all of, his, all of the privileges that he had. Now, there's people out there that say this isn't what the Bible teaches. He took all his privileges. He didn't stop being God, but he took the power by which God operated and he laid that aside so that he could become like us. He was still God, but he laid aside the advantages that he had as the second person of the Godhead. And what happens then is he operates in ministry under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's still God's power. It just now comes from the Holy Spirit. And the reason that's so important is because he said, when I leave, I'm gonna, it's going to be to your advantage because the same power that's operated through me is now going to operate in you because I'm going to ask the Father and He's going to send the Holy Spirit. If Jesus did His miracles as the power of the second person of the Godhead, where does that leave us? Where does that leave the church? But He laid those aside and picked them up through the Holy Spirit. Now, I know this is kind of teachy this morning, but it's okay. We're laying a foundation for something this morning. So here, Paul's saying... He was in such a place with God the Father that it wasn't robbery for him to say he was equal with him. Why? Because he was. He was the Son of God. It's not robbery for our kids to come into our house and act as if it's theirs. Why? Because there are children with limits. Because <laughs> one's here. All right made himself, verse 7, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice he gets the glory out of all this. The Father does. Doesn't a father get recognition? That's my boy. The one who run the race? That's him. That's him. And you'll see if you read, we're not going to take the time to do it. If you read through John 14, 15, and 16, you'll see there's places where God's saying, that's my boy. And Jesus saying, and that's my father. See, they weren't, Jesus wasn't performing some ritual. He wasn't, he wasn't living out some religious obligation. He was in love with his father. And everything he did was to please his father. Why? Because he loved his father. It was out of that father-son relationship. Because he didn't stop being the son when he came here. Let's look at another scripture. Let's go to John chapter 8. Verse 48. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do not say you rightly that you're a Samaritan. Or we do, do not say rightly that you're a Samaritan or demon. And Jesus answered and said to them, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Oh boy, did that stir him up. Then the Jews said to him, Oh, wait a minute. Now we know you've got a demon. Abraham's dead. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? I mean, you're messing on holy ground here. <laughs> and the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? There's that question. Who are you saying you are? Jesus answered and said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say, He is your God. In other words, you say God is yours, and that God's the one that honors me as a son. Yet you have not known Him, and now He's really going to get it. But I know Him. If I say that I do not know Him, I shall be a liar, like you. <laughs> but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, he's really going to get into this. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, <clears throat> and he saw it and was glad. Now they think they've got him. The Jews answered and said to him, you're not even 50 years old. And you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Woo! See, some people have this image that Jesus was just 
You know, they got the picture of him with the lamb over his shoulder. You know. Bless you all. You having a good day? Is everybody happy? Oh, I came to make everybody smile today. <laughs> well, there's some people he came to make happy. <laughs> now, remember back. In fact, turn with me to Exodus chapter. We may come back here. But turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. See, Jesus came to declare the truth, not to be popular. He didn't come to start a religion. He came to save souls. But in order to do that, you've got to declare the truth. Now, this chapter 3, of course, we've been over this before, is, is where God's calling Moses. And God's giving Moses his commission. We talked about it a few weeks ago. And he says, I'm called you to go and deliver my people, because they're crying out to be delivered. And Moses says, well, sir, I understand that. I'm looking at a bush that's burning and it's not being consumed, and that's impressive to me. And a bush is talking to me, but uh, I don't see how I can really take the bush back with me, because the problem I'm going to have is I'm going to have to go back there and say what you told me to say, but I'm not going to have the burning bush next to me when I say it. They're only, in other words, they're only going to see me. So, who am I going to say sent me? Because they're going to want to know. I mean, some of them may remember me when I was there before. Who am I going to say sent me? Because that's where I'm going to get my authority and power from because you're the one that's going to anoint me to do it. And look at God's answer. It's in Exodus 3. Verse 14, then God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am sent me. Now that's translated over into English into Jehovah. I am. It means I just am. I never was. And there'll never be a point where I will be. I just am. To put anything after I am limits who I am. I just am. I am the, there's some of us that just seem to exist. That's not what he's talking about. I am self-sufficient. I owe my existence to no one and no being and everything that exists owes its existence to me. I am it, the it, with a capital I and a capital T. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And by the way, everything in between. I just am. Now, that had a particular significance to the Jews at that time because they were living in bondage to a, in Egypt to a king who had a title of Pharaoh. 
there were many different pharaohs. They had different names. But the title they were always given was Pharaoh because their belief that they tried to convince the people of is that they were God. The problem was they weren't. And because they weren't, they died. That's why they have all those pyramids, the tombs there. So the way they handled that little nitty problem was they gave them all the same title. Pharaoh. So Pharaoh basically means I am God that just always is. The problem was they weren't always is. So God's answer is particularly focused at that because Moses is going to have to stand before Pharaoh who claims to be God and ask who sent you? And so Moses' answer is going to be the real I am sent me. Years ago when I was a kid, they had a television program called What's My Line? Remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember it with me. And you had, you know, four panelists and, and you had a, somebody would come in and, and they would have a profession. They may be, you know, a, you know, a trapeze artist. And they, they, the panel would ask them questions. <clears throat> Excuse me, there were three of them. There were three. And the panel would ask questions of number one, number two, or number three. And, by, and, and the one that was the true trapeze artist had to tell the truth. The others could say anything they wanted to try to convince the panelists that they were the true trans. And so, but at the end, after they all voted, the commentator would say, will the real trapeze artist please stand up? There's coming a day. Not too long from now. When the real I am is going to stand up. That's why I don't argue with people about whether God exists. They're going to know. I don't have to prove myself right. It's not about me. The issue is their soul, not whether we're right or not. Because we just read a passage in Philippians 2 where there's going to come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall declare who Jesus is. So they can vote, they can write books, they can go on TV, they can have their own opinion, but there's coming a day when the real Son of God is going to stand up and when he stands up, every knee will bow. Why will every knee bow? Because of who he is. It will not bow because he was a great religious leader. It will not bow because he formed the greatest religion of the world ever known. It will not bow. It will bow for one reason and one reason alone. Because he humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. It's above Pharaoh's name. It's above every leader's name today. It's above every religious leader's name. It's above my name. It's above your name. The Bible says, and that revelation is going to come like a thief in the night, quickly. 
There's a verse that says when he comes, everyone will look upon him. You still wonder, how could that happen? Well, we have satellites now. You can't burp in some parts of the world if you're a leader and it's not, it's not on Facebook and everywhere else instantly on TV if you're important. Hope I didn't offend anyone. So certainly the Son of God coming out of the clouds will be noticed. Every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and this is the one I love, under the earth. Every knee will bow to who he is. Why? Because he's the Christ, the son of the living God. There's a parable that Jesus told about a farmer who sent his servants out to gather in the the produce and they killed the servants. He said, well, they disrespected me by killing my servants. I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him because he's my son. When he showed up, they said, ah, this is the heir. What does it mean to us that God sent His Son? I am who I am. You shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me. Now let's go back to John chapter 8. Verse 58 again. Because they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're not even 50 years old, and you're saying you saw Abraham? How, how can that be? And Jesus said, it's simple. Before Abraham was, notice Abraham at a time when he wasn't, then when he was, and then when he wasn't again. Before Abraham was, I am. To a Jew in that day, you have to understand that when they read, those that could read, when they read this, this, the Torah and the name Jehovah or Yahweh appeared, they would skip it. In fact, in some Jewish Bibles, it's still there like that. They would skip it because their thought was, my lips aren't clean enough to pronounce that name. That name was powerful to them by their tradition. And this carpenter's son is saying, I saw Abraham before he was. How could you do that? Because before he was, I am. That would be like taking your fingernails and running them up and down a chalkboard. Because notice the kind reaction he got. 
Verse 59. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, so he passed by. So Jesus claimed to them that he was with God the Father, the self-existent one that had existed before any of this existed. Notice again, the issue of who he is stirs up emotion and passion. John 16. Verse 26. Now he's talking to his disciples. Well, let's go to... uh, Verse 25, he says, I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world, and again, I leave the world and go to the Father. Now over to chapter 17. This is his, after he's <clears throat> gone through his last supper with them and shared his last comments with them. Now he pulls aside and begins to talk to God his Father. Jesus spoke these words. After Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. You have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me or return to me the glory together with yourself, the glory which I had with you before the world was. My question is, if he didn't put it aside, why did he ask to have it returned? He had before the beginning of the world the glory. And that's hard for us to even imagine what that is. There was one point where Jesus went up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And they look up and they see him talking to to, uh, uh, Elisha and to to Moses. And it says he appeared, the, the term we use is he was transfigured. In other words, the glory that was in him began to just shine out in its fullness. Do you understand that when he walked on the earth, the glory of God in him was kind of covered, cloaked. But on that mountain, he let out. And and Peter got so excited, he wanted to build a church there. The church of the transfiguration. The church of the glory of God revealed in this spot. And then it all disappeared. You You try to house God your way, he'll... You're the housing of God. All right. And then verse 24. Father, I desire that also those who you gave me may be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What we're going to look at, because today we're just going to teach you laying a foundation. We've looked today at what the clip, scriptures clearly tell us, that Jesus that walked on this earth, before he walked on this earth, he was literally the, out, the Son, the full expression of God, the source of all life the creator of all that exists. And that God took his son, not an angel, not an obedient being, he took his own son and had him lay aside all the power and attributes that he had as that son and took on flesh like you and I walk around in. What does that mean to us? We'll pick up in here next time, next week, but I'll give you a, just a taste. For God so loved the world that he gave what? He's the only begotten son. We know that verse so well. I challenge you to think about that verse. God took his own son. See, we sometimes think because he's God, he doesn't have emotions. You need to read your Bible. We think because he's God, he can't be hurt. We think because he's God, he doesn't, have, he doesn't get excited. We think because of God, he doesn't have passions and emotions like we do. Where do you think they come from? He has control of them. But we not think his son meant something to him? How precious he was to him? If you want to know how important you are to God... Take that scripture, John 3.16, and just think about it every day when you get up, when you go to bed. God so loved me that he gave his only, he didn't have three or four to pick of, he only had one, begotten son in my place. Romans 8.32, we'll look at this, said if he didn't withhold his own son, why don't we think he'll also freely give us everything else he has? God's not holding anything back from you if he took his own son while you were yet a sinner and gave his son's life in your place. The power of the gospel is the realization that you personally were so precious to him, not because of how good you were, because you were his creation. That you are so precious to him that he was willing to exchange his own son's life for yours. If he was willing to do that, why do we think that the God who has everything and can do everything would hold anything else that he has or can do for us Hey, Pastor, it seems like he's holding it back because I've asked him and I don't have it. Well, there may be reasons 
why you don't have it yet. It may be because you really haven't yet believed that he's going to give it to you. The condition of all answered prayer, first of all, is you must believe that you've received it when you've asked because he's given it to you when you've asked. How can I believe that? Because his word says so. How can I believe that he loves me that much? Because his word says so. We've got to learn to stop being ruled and judge things by our feelings. But I don't feel loved. The Bible doesn't talk about how you feel. It tells you what he's done for you and expects us to believe what he's done for you because he said so. And the Bible tells us that God loved you enough to give his own son's life in your place. That's the power of the gospel is in how much he loved you. That's what changes us and transforms us. The revelation of how valuable I am to him. Not because of anything I've done or not done. Because he did this before you were ever born. He paid for you. Before you ever did anything good or bad, he paid for you that he might have you. And he was willing to take his own son and give his life in your place. That's how precious you are to him. That's how valuable you are to him. That's how much he loves you. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we thank you today for your word. And we pray, Father, that by your Spirit, that the word we've heard would begin to penetrate our hearts with the revelation of how far you are willing to go for us. Help us to see that you're not an angry taskmaster in heaven, waiting to get back at us for our failures and our weaknesses that you're a loving father who loved us so much that you took your precious son and you sacrificed him for our sins that you might redeem us and have us for yourself open our eyes to see a revelation of how much you love us and how you've proven that love Jesus. Amen. Before we